Tuesday, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rob with episode number 216 of Shut Up and Grind with me, Robert B. Foster. So if you're new to the show, we are all about overcoming obstacles. We're about storytelling, stories of defying the odds, story of, I mean, the stories from all over. So I've had guests from all over the world, six different continents, 30 plus countries, and everyone's got an amazing story to share. So if that appeals to you, you know, hang, hang around because we're going to have another one today as we're speaking with a Vietnam veteran, and he's going to go through his stories and stories of people that he served with over in Vietnam. And like I said, we're going to have a great conversation. So if you join me over on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. If you're joining me on either of the Facebook pages, please like and share because you don't want to keep all this good info to yourself. And if you want a little bit of background on me, this is me. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. All right, so before I bring on my guests, you know, we have to do the teachable moment of the day. And I will try to get through this without being emotional. So the topic of of today's show is navigating life with PTSD. And so when I met, when I met my guest, it was at a publicity summit. And so he was talking about living, living with PTSD from serving in Vietnam. And that immediately reminded me of my father who also served in Vietnam. And towards the end of his life, you know, for those that don't know, he passed in November of 2019, uh, going, I was bringing him to meetings up at the VA, and he was starting to open up about things that he experienced during the war. And, you know, some, some of the things were very deep and very, very graphic. But the part of it that broke my heart was that he spent his entire life living with the weight of what he went through. And so as I was going into my guest backstory, it seemed like he went through some of that as well. And now he's sharing his stories, his experiences, and you know some of his seem pretty graphic as well. But the importance is, as you guys know, the show is all about storytelling. And so being able to take what happened, find those teachable moments in what happened and use it to inspire other people rather than letting the experience define you and continue to hurt you, you can find those teachable moments and find the power in those moments. So that's today's teachable moment. So if you've been through something and you want to share your story, 
reach out to me and I'll help you package it into a way to where it's powerful and it's inspirational. So with that being said, let me bring on, and you know this guy's going to be cool because we share the same name. So let me bring on Robert Toporek. Morning. morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to share your stories and um, what you have going on. So I appreciate that. And uh, where are you joining me from? I'm joining you from Audubon, Pennsylvania, which is close to being in a black hole in space as you can get. <laughs> what part of Pennsylvania is that? It's a little west of King of Prussia. That's a little west. Okay. That's a little west of Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually familiar with that with that area. Yeah. Like I like I like Pennsylvania. I'm, actually, I'm going there in July, but I'm going up to the mountains in uh, the Palmerton area. Blue Mountain. Come visit me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it out there. Love it. Yeah. And um, all right. So so let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. So, are you originally from Pennsylvania? I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina. South Carolina, okay. So that, that's where the Southern drawer is. <laughs> you, you still got it a little. You still got that Southern drawer a little bit. Well, I dated a girl one time who said, "You talk like crap," and I said, "Nobody will ever talk to me like that again." So I kind of worked on getting rid of the, uh, "Hey y'all, where you been? How's it going?" Kind of accent. So, uh, hopefully, I've gotten away from some of that, but not all of it. <laughs> That's too funny. You I mean, no matter you can take the boy out of the South, but you can't take the South out of the boy. Well, that's like up here with New England because you know we're known for not pronouncing our R's, you know, like yep. stop and Kai, and it, it is what it is, you know. Why, yep. why, why try to change it? It is what it is. <laughs> so, all right. So, how would you describe your upbringing? Uh, strange. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a, in a somewhat, I guess, at the time it was a somewhat middle class little neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It was a suburb of uh, of Charleston. I think it was one of the first suburbs. Okay, and um. My, I was Jewish. My family was Jewish. And we, um, on one side of us was a staunch Catholic family with five children. On the other side was a staunch Baptist family. And um, I went to a Baptist kindergarten. And um, they would do Hanukkah at our house. We'd do Christmas at their house. And it was a kind of neighborhood where the kids ran around all the time. We had our own little basketball court. We created our own little baseball field. We used to hunt for tadpoles and go blackberry pick, pick, picking blackberries and uh, water skiing. And uh, it was generally, a, you know, a relatively great growing up. But there was also an element to my childhood that was kind of rough and tough. And um, we were jumping out of trees and uh, we were fighting and uh, smoking and uh, doing all those things you shouldn't do as a kid. And uh, you could either... Uh, sing, dance, and um, or you were just nothing. <laughs> sing, sing, dance, and fight. So that's kind of what how we uh, how I survived. Yeah, I mean that that's pretty much how how it was, you know, in this pre pre technological age. Because like I grew up in the woods myself, and we we did a lot of climbing trees, and you know we piled the leaves at the bottom of the tree, we climbed the tree, and jumped down <laughs> into the leaves, and yep. you know you just you just found ways to to entertain yourself. That's whereas, whereas, like now, if you, you know, tell the kid, all right, you know, get off the Xbox or whatever, they're like lost. Exactly. <laughs> it's like they don't know what to do. Yep, 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 yep. So yeah, miss uh, that simple way of living. And then you know, for my teachers, my teacher taught me. They taught my brother. They taught my sister. So it was like you know, one big family. 
uh, community. So it was a lot of community. And then uh, we had a connection to the Jewish community. So uh, that was there too. And um, that was pretty much the, and um, let me see, my, my brother had diabetes, my sister had asthma, and um, I was the only healthy person in my family. And so my parents were kind of like, go play. And um, I was kind of left on my own a lot. So what was it like with the different religious ideologies? It's still strange. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, because as I'm listening to you, I was like, Jewish, Catholic, and Baptist? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I still identify, I, I don't go to synagogue a lot, but I still identify with the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And it's strange to live in a, in a world in which that's sort of like an outside group. Yeah. It's not really the inside group. And um, I just kind of live with it. Um, I went to a, a, a military school for middle school, and we had to go to chapel every day. And yeah. uh, that was all a little weird. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I, we were probably the only Jewish kids in the school. And uh, But, you know, you learn how to live with it. <laughs> yeah. So being the only Jewish kids in the school, did you deal with bullying at all? I think. <laughs> in middle school I used to bully another kid. No. He was he was kind of fat. Okay. I used to I used to tease him a lot. Mm-hmm. One day he just came and punched me in the nose. Oh no. <laughs> that ended that ended my bullying days. And there wasn't a lot of bullying, no. I don't, I wouldn't say those you know, we, we teased each other a lot, but um yeah. I don't think there's a lot of bullying. Okay. That's good. That's good. All right. So what led you to the military? That's a great question. <clears throat> um, I grew up watching uh, the Green Berets and Audie Murphy from World War II. So war at that time was glorified, at least World War II was. Yeah. And so were the Green Berets. And um, I don't know, I just sort of always found it fascinating. And uh, I was failing the 11th grade at the, for the second time. Okay. Um, at 16, I was already a closet alcoholic. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody knew it, but I drank more than you should be drinking when you're 16. Okay. And um, school was just not my dish. And my mother, uh, I was failing. It was around Christmas time. I was failing the 11th grade for the second time. I couldn't get past Caesar's Gallic Wars. I was taking Latin too. <laughs> I got to this point in the book about Caesar's Gallic Wars and I just drew a blank. And then I got to Algebra 2 and I just, I did well in, you know, geometry and Algebra 1, but I got to Algebra 2. It's just like uh, I just blanked out. Mm-hmm. And so I was failing again. And um, I came home for the holidays and my mother got my report card and she said, You're not going back to school. I said, What? She said, yep, you're going to get a job, you're going to go to a trade school, or you're going to join the service. A good friend of mine had joined the Army a few weeks before that. Mm-hmm. He was extraordinarily talented, had the opportunity to get scholarships to any college he wanted to go to in any sport he wanted to play, yeah. and he joined the Army. And I went and talked to him and told him how stupid it was, how horrible it was, <laughs> like, you got to be kidding me. And... Um, then my mother said, you know, those are my three choices. So getting a job didn't sound like a good future. Going to a trade school seemed to be beneath me. And because I had higher aspirations for myself. Yeah. And um, so I decided to join the Army. And my dad took me down to the recruiter. 
Yeah. And they had a sign for me because I was too young to join. Mm-hmm. And um, the recruiter said, make sure you go back to your principal and tell him I didn't recruit you because a number of people have started to quit high school <laughs> and <laughs> the army. And so uh, that's what I did. And um, I actually wanted to be in, I think, Special Forces, a Green Beret. And um, the recruiter said, no problem. Mm-hmm. And he forgot to tell me two fundamental uh, parts to the story. Was that I needed to have a high school diploma. He didn't tell me that. And the second one, he didn't tell me that I'd have to jump out of airplanes. Okay. <laughs> now, I'd never been in an airplane. Yeah. So why am I going to go in an airplane and jump out? <laughs> that's what happened. Let me turn this phone off. Hold on one second. Um, so that's what happened. And, um, and I went to... Uh, I knew I was not the kind of outdoorsy kind of person mm-hmm. that you would think. And um, so I went to Fort Jackson for basic training. I went to Fort Gordon for advanced infantry. And um, I'm probably the last person in the world that should have been in the service. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and then when I went to jump school, um, the first five airplane rides I've ever taken I jumped out of and you know you talk about you know like grinding it and going for it like to be a paratrooper you have to run excessive amounts of time you got to do all these push-ups and uh and all this other stuff and so um I was physically testing and my first airplane ride I was the first person in the door so here I am here's the the door of the airplane's open Mm -hmm. I'm standing in the door looking at this beautiful earth and thinking, this is not a good idea. <laughs> Why did I do this? <laughs> but knowing, knowing, knowing that I'd heard the stories about people not jumping and then flying back out, flying back around, and then throwing you out the airplane, and mm-hmm. knowing that there were 100 people behind me that were going to push me out anyway, and there was not much of a choice but to jump out. So my, yeah. first, my first five airplane rides, I ended up jumping out. That's awesome. <laughs> That's on my bucket list. Like I went, I went to skydive once. But uh, what what year was that that you joined the service? Nineteen. I started. I went to uh, basic training, January fifth, nineteen sixty five. Nineteen sixty five. Right. Oh. So, the was the war already going then? It was not going. Was I mean, not going? not really. Not that I knew of. Okay. All right. So. I'm going to ask you an unrelated question, but what was it like? Because that was around the time 1965 was when they passed the Civil Rights Act. Just what was the world like during that time? The world in Charleston, South Carolina, was completely segregated. Yeah. And the strange thing about it is my father was a peddler. I don't know if you know what a peddler is. I've I've heard the term, but you can refresh my memory. What he did was... um, and the, the, the African-American community um, lived mostly in the rural areas and they didn't have transportation for the most part. Mm-hmm. And there were no, there were no um, shopping centers. Shopping centers didn't exist uh, then. I think they built first, first shopping center around that time. Yeah. And he used to load up a, a van with linoleum rugs and pots and pans and towels and sheets and stuff like that. And he would travel around. It was a first credit card system. He had a little piece of paper and he would keep track of each one of his customers and they would pay a dollar down and a dollar a week or 25 cents a week. Mm. And he'd go around collecting it. 
and I would go with him, and I was pretty amazed at the rudimentary way in which people were living in those communities. Yeah. And uh, then he bought a um, grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood, and so I worked with, we had two black employees, and I worked with them, and we got along really well, but they weren't going to go to dinner with me. They weren't going to go, mm -hmm. we weren't going to go to the movies. We weren't going to go downtown. Yeah. We didn't date the same girls. And um, that was always pretty odd to me. And um, the, um, the, um, the sit-ins and the integrating uh, lunch counters and stuff like that was starting. And we had a Hardee's restaurant and we were that, you know, we'd all go there and hang out at the Hardee's and, um, so a bunch of black kids came over there one day to integrate the Hardee's. Mm -hmm. So there was a black uh, restaurant across the street. So we went over there and integrated the black restaurant. <laughs> we thought that was fair. And that was pretty much it. Uh, there wasn't a lot of hostility or anything, but it was, uh, you know, sort of the segregation was sort of an accepted way of being. Yeah. And um, I've discovered later on in life, and it's still probably the case, that it wasn't lunch counters that, people were resisting giving up. It wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't school integration. It was um, uh, white superiority. Mm -hmm. And so whites believed, and we sort of had the idea, and blacks were painted as subhuman beings. And so we were painted as superior. Yeah. And so what we didn't want to give up is our superiority. Gotcha. And I took that into Vietnam with me. Okay. All right. How so? Well... <clears throat> When I was in, I remember this in basic training, and there was this black sergeant. Now, I never had a black guy, a black person, get in my face and yell at me and tell me my mother was a piece of crap. Now, okay. get out and do some push-ups. And he didn't do it like, please. It was yeah. like, <laughs> your mother's a bunch of crap. Get out. Get, give me 20. Yeah. And so that was the first uh, thing. And then uh, we'll get into the Milton Olive story later. But um, yes. Um, that got carried into Vietnam and uh, Vietnam, I don't know if you know this or not, was one of the first integrated wars yeah. where the army was fully integrated. Mm -hmm. And so we had black sergeants and black officers and stuff like that, which was not common in outside in that white community that I grew up in. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but you know that in Charleston, South Carolina, where the war of Northern aggression started, there was no such thing as a civil war. No. <laughs> it was called the War of Northern Aggression. So Northern what happened Aggression. was that um, Lincoln heard that the Southerners were rattling their sabers. And there was a fort outside of Charleston called Fort Sumter. And he decided he was going to reinforce it. And the general from uh, in Charleston found out about it. And he decided that he was going to bomb Fort Sumter. And that was the beginning of what's called the War of Northern Aggression. Okay. Those cannons and cannonballs, are st I just th thought about this recently, but those cannons and cannonballs are still there, and we used to play on them, and we used to play pretend that the South was going to rise again, mm -hmm. and that we were going to defeat the North. Gotcha. See, I, I appreciate you sh sharing all of this, because like, not, not a lot of people would, would share those, those candid facts about the times that you're living. Like when I, when I speak to my kids about how things were back then, I say what you said, like 
it was accepted back then. It's like whether it was right or, or morally wrong or anything, that, that's a separate story. It's just the fact that it was legally accepted, you know? And exactly. so, yep. Yep. so for you, how did your perspective change as far as the white superiority? Well, we'll get into the Milton Olive story now, okay? Okay. So when I got to Vietnam, first of all, I wasn't supposed to go um, to Vietnam, I was supposed to go to Okinawa. Okay. And that's where I was assigned to the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And um, we were we, we were a separate brigade, and we thought of ourselves as a, se- a separate part of the entire military. Okay. And, um, and I ended up in the weapons squad, and Olive and I, the way I tell the story is, he was black, I was white, we ended up in a tent together, and the Army made one fatal mistake they forgot to send a counselor. <laughs> oh, so he grew up in Lexington, Mississippi. Uh, there are people that argue that he did not, but I've been to Lexington a couple times. I know where he was born. I know where he was buried. I've been to his grave a couple times. Yeah. And um, uh, he had started getting involved in the civil rights movement, and his father brought him up to Chicago to get him out of there because black kids were getting killed who were doing that. White kids were getting killed as well. Yeah. And um, anyway, so he was pretty much a progressive black person at that time if that's if there's such a thing mm-hmm. and um and i was you know this i wasn't a particularly racist but i was you know it's sort of like a little grain of salt in your in your mm-hmm. system yeah and um and the army forgot to send a counselor mm-hmm. and he had the same temperament i did he had the black version i had the white version we used to provoke each other okay and um one day i said let's settle this and so we went behind our tent and after the fight, he the way I tell the story is, he beat the white out of me, I beat the black out of him. The only thing left were men whose lives depend on each other. Mm. And then um, as about a month or so later, I don't know how long it was, but uh, sometime after that, we went on a mission and we um, ran into an ambush. Now, I wasn't there at the moment he got killed because imagine being on a straight line like a football field you know, you're on the goal line and you're going down to the, to the, you know, other side. And so we were kind of, as best I remember, sweeping through the jungle. And on the far right, I was the last person on the far right, except for one other person. Further out to the right, in the middle of the jungle, walking around there by himself was Sergeant Fletcher, who also happened to be black. Yeah. And he's the only person that knows the story. <laughs> it's taken me over 50 years to get in touch with him and have him verify that that happened. And he waved me over. He said he thought he heard something. So he and I were, for a few minutes, I don't know, it seemed like a lifetime, walking around the jungle by ourselves. And we lost track of the rest of the platoon. And um, all of a sudden, the jungle erupted in gunfire and explosions and people screaming and stuff like that. And we hit the ground and shrapnels flying through the jungle. And when it all kind of died down, we crawled back to the rest of the unit and Olive was laying on his stomach with his guts hanging out. I mean, literally, he jumped on a hand grenade, and his guts on his right side were blown out. He, and he, I, jumped, he jumped on the grenade? Either, I wasn't there. There are different versions of the story. Okay. But essentially, he ended up on, a, on top of the grenade, and it blew up, and it saved the lives of four other people. Wow. So he's the first African-American to be awarded the Medal of Honor in the Vietnam War. Now, the likelihood of that black kid from Mississippi and this white from kid from Charleston, South Carolina, 
being at the same time in the same place is more unlikely than anything you can imagine. And um, I was sitting there looking at him and somebody said, don't look at him, put him on a poncho and carry him out of here. So me and a couple of other people put his guts back in his body, literally put him on a poncho and carried him out. Wow. And, um, and then I didn't, we never talked about it. There was no debriefing. Nobody said, how do you feel? Nobody, we just sucked it up and moved on. And so, and then the rest of the time I was in Vietnam, there were a number of other cases where people got killed and um, we just sucked it up and moved on. And when I came back to the United States, um, I didn't talk about it. I mean, it's not- let me let me stop you right right there. Hold on, back to the U.S. Let me write that down so you can pick back up there, because I have questions. <laughs> right, I have questions. So, given see, and and I'm glad that you shared the backstory because that makes this part of the story even that much more powerful. So, just like you said, two guys from two completely different backgrounds, two completely different mentalities growing up, end up in a tent together. You provoke each other. You're having a fight. At the end of the fight, you realize we are both human beings who need each other to get through this. Yep. Right? And so when you find out he has been killed and how how it happened, what were your initial thoughts? Um, it was shock. Um um loss it, it's indescribable yeah you know because because by that time there was a brotherhood and it's like you know can you you have any brothers or sisters i have seven can you well, imagine well, well six can you imagine one of them getting killed and you having to put their bodies back together and carry them out of the out uh, of no the no nope. it's unimaginable mm-hmm. it's 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 not really speakable um, it's hard to describe, but I, you know, I'm just standing there in that moment of shock and grief and and um, and wonder, like, why him? Why wasn't it me? And so that's the beginning of what's called survivor's guilt. Yeah, that played out in my life and still is still playing out in my life today. And um, and you know, we just never got to talk about it. So um, you become numb to it, and um, you just you're, you're carrying a human being out of the jungle and on a poncho. And, See, and, uh, and at that moment, right, what you just said, you're carrying a human being. Like, so you no longer saw him as a black person who had, who was beneath you. Nope. He was my brother. It's awesome. And, you know, and I don't know. See, other people know what happened in that moment. Yeah. Different people have different versions of it because they were somewhere somewhere associated or close to it. I have this one buddy who swears it didn't happen the way everybody else says it happens. And I am no longer arguing with him. I said, you know what? I've discovered that no two people see the same thing in the same way in any same moment. Especially so, during, during war. During, <laughs> when people are shooting at you. <laughs> well, at any, at any time, but especially during yeah. war. So, so mm-hmm. I let him have his story and um, I have mine and mine was, you know, carry him out of the jungle and, um, and then just never talking about it. We've never talked about it. Yeah. We never had a meeting. It was never like a group conversation. You know, we just mm-hmm. didn't talk about it. 
Yeah, let me let me jump in again really quick. Cause this is this is actually one of my siblings here, Monique. She works with with veterans, and uh, you know she's been deployed a couple of times, I believe. Don't know one hundred percent where, but Monique, um, if you if you have people that want to share their stories, get me in touch with them, and uh, you know we'll we'll give them air airtime as well, so they can share share those stories. All right, so you're back in the U.S. So now you get paired up with Milton Olive, you know, and so you weren't thrilled at first. So you guys form a brotherhood. He's lost in battle, protecting other people. I mean, regardless of, of how people say it happens, dude was on a grenade. So it's like he became yeah, an no, instant the, the, hero in that moment. In that moment, he was a hero. Prior to that moment, he was a regular jerk like the rest of us. <laughs> I love it. But in that moment, he was a hero because he did literally save the lives of four other people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So so, so now you're back in the U.S. You said you guys didn't talk about it. There were no support groups. Like, what did that do to you? Because like I said in my teachable moment, that was the part that broke my heart with my father, being at the VA with him and just listening to him open up. And it's like you you held on to that for 50-plus years. You know, so what so what made you hold on to it and then ultimately decide to tell the stories? Well, I remember when I put him down, when we you know took him back to the helicopter to be evacuated out, to be sent yep. back home. Mm -hmm. I remember saying, you know how you say th make promises to yourself? Yes. And some you keep and some you don't? Yes. Well, I promised myself that I, when I got back, I would call his father. Mm -hmm. But I didn't. I didn't for 25 years. Wow. So initially when I got back to the United States, um, that was only one incident. I'm working on another chapter today and tomorrow where uh, about eight people got killed, two of them right in front of me. Oh. And, um, and I could have been, I came, uh, I was, uh, the guy that killed them was trying to kill me and a bullet hit the tree behind me. And had I been kneeling, I looked, turned around, looked, and I said, if I'd been kneeling differently, I'd be dead. Wow. And then I killed him. And I've never really shared that story. I've done it a little bit, but I'm working between now and tomorrow night. I'm going to finish that chapter. Okay. And there's other people that got killed. And then there's another guy that got killed and another guy that got killed. And they were all our brothers. Yeah. And so nobody's ever put that story together. And I'm working on doing that. And the book's going to be called A Great Vietnam War Story, Beyond Survivor's Guilt, The yes. Path to Anywhere and Anything. So when I came back, I uh, was assigned to Fort Jackson uh, in, in Columbia, South Carolina. And my job was to train other people. Uh, oh, I stayed there for two years, by the way. Okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't out of any sen sense of patriotism. It just doesn't snow in Vietnam. Now, <laughs> ask me what that means. <laughs> what does that mean, Robert? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I was in the non-commissioned officer <laughs> about a um, a week or two, or a couple of weeks. I don't know how long. I lost track. Of time. You didn't have calendars. There were no, you know, smartphones or anything like yeah. that. And um, I was in the non-commissioned officer's lounge, and I was a I was an acting sergeant at the time. I was 19 years old, an acting sergeant. It takes a while when you're in the service to become a sergeant. Yes. And um, I was watching the show about infantry training at Fort Carson, Colorado in the snow. 
And I remember looking at it and saying, damn, that does not look like fun. So I get my orders to go back to the United States. Where are they going to send me? Four cars in Colorado. Mm. So I looked at the orders and I said to myself, damn, I can't do this. I went to the company clerk, said, what can I do? He said, stay here. Yeah, that's a good idea. Now, that was not a good idea. Over 46 people in our company got killed the first year I was there. Essentially, what I was saying is I'm going to stay in the jungle for another six months. And what prompted me to do that was my best friend, the guy that was with me on March 16th when a couple of people got killed in front of us, he had extended for six months. We didn't talk about it. I just knew he was staying. And we had this brother, we had this relationship that is just unspeakable. And um, so I figured if he was staying, that he would protect me and we'd be good. And um, one of the people that Olive saved was our former platoon leader that then was a company first sergeant. And he had about a month or two left to go in Vietnam. And he said, as long as I'm here, you're not going to be in the field. So he sent me up to headquarters and one thing led to another. And I became the non-commissioned officer in charge of our civil, civil uh, battalion civil affairs program. I had a group of wounded soldiers. They were too wounded to go to the field, but not wounded enough to go home. Mm. I can't remember a single name. I worked with these guys for a year, 11 months. Yeah. I can't remember one name. Mm. And um, when I talked to my buddy Short, we realized that we began to dis- disassociate from getting that related to people anymore because uh, it was too painful because they might leave us, get killed, do something. And uh, when I came back, I was sent to Fort Jackson and my job was to train other people to go back. And by that time, I knew that we had lost the war and that it was in 1968 and that anybody else going was a wasted life. And thousands and thousands of wasted lives went after that. And so every weekend I met some buddies from mine from high school who all went to University of South Carolina and they had a fraternity. And, you know, back in those days, fraternities, you know, you drink a lot and you party a lot. And so I would get off on Thursday, go downtown, buy a gallon of liquor, hang out in their fraternity and just drink and party for three days. And Sunday night, go back to my barracks and Monday morning, wake up and train people to kill people again. And I hated it. And I literally hated it. And so when I came back, when I got out of the army, uh, one thing led to another. And I just went on with my life. And then about 25 years later, I remembered uh, I was in a personal development seminar and it was called from possible from from complaint to possibility. And by that time, mm-hmm. I had a pretty great life and I was doing things, something called rolfing and I was working on people's bodies and I had a great practice and lived in a great house, had great friends, was you know doing really well. And um, I said, one of my complaints. Oh, yes. I promised myself I'd call Olive's father and I haven't done that yet. So somehow or another, I found him in Chicago. We had some conversations. He told me, I don't even think I knew that Olive got the Medal of Honor up until that point. Wow. And um, his father told me about that. And he told me about the whole thing. He told me that our unit had its own reunion group. I got reconnected to them. And I promised his father that I would work on making it a national story. And he gave me his blessings. Now, you would think that that would be really cool, but I can't tell you how many people have opposed me doing that and Why? did not like my story. They had a different story about Olive that I had, okay. and, and it wasn't true. And uh, they didn't like my version of, of the story. So anyway, I'm still working on making a national story. 
I've recently contacted the entire Congressional Black Caucus and sent them information about it. And so far, I've gotten no response. Okay. <laughs> you know, All right. That's the way life goes sometimes. You put it out there and you hit uh, nothing. And then what do you do? Then you go back and you make phone calls, you do follow-ups. So sooner or later, it's going to become a national story. And I just published an ebook called, um, it's an ebook about Milton Olive. I have a website called um, miltonolive.org. And um, if anybody wants to go to it and look it up, and they can download the ebook. There's free chapters. And there's one chapter called um, After the Fight. So there's, there's a little section called After the Fight in which I talk about that. And um, that's pretty much it. Now, continuing that vein, on March 16th, uh, which will be tomorrow, uh, in 1966, we were on a mission and we knew that we were in deep enemy territory. We we're in a place called War Zone D. Do you know why mm -hmm. it's called War Zone D? Nope. Because it was not fun. It was not kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, we, we were, uh, they were called search and destroy missions or, you know, we, we were trained to kill people that we didn't know. Yeah. Never did anything against us that we didn't have any beef with, who never invaded our country or done anything else, but we were there to kill them. And, um, and we were justified because we we're the army, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, this uh, is, sorry, this is what my sister said. I'm assuming she's talking to you. I'd love to talk to you about my convention. So that's a, that's a connection for you. That's great. I'd love to talk to her about it. Um, so anyway, uh, we knew that we were in enemy turf. We knew that we were close by because the day before we had run across some uh, fresh rice on the ground and some bunkers and stuff like that. And so we knew that we were, they were not too far behind. And um, we set up a perimeter around a clear, there's this thing called a clearing in the jungle where there's just this patch of, open space and then there's all jungle around it so we had set up all around the jungle and the next morning we were moving out and we were going to move out right in front of where our squad was set up and so we were on a supposed to go on a patrol and and i was supposed to be a point man the job of the point man is to find the enemy before they find you yeah and for 50 years i swore it happened one way but it didn't happen that way and what happened was there was this guy named bochamp and he said I was getting, we were all standing there and I was getting ready to move out. And he said, I'm going to go first. And I said, man, you've got 45 days left. I'm going to go first. He said, I've got more experience. Said, man, you've got 45 days left. I thought for over 50 years that he went first. And that as he walked up the trail, he got killed. But it didn't mm -hmm. happen that way. Okay. I didn't know about that until two years ago. And what actually happened is there was a guy on my left-hand side that I don't even remember. Um, him being in our squad, I never met, I don't, just don't even remember the guy. And um, he said, over my shoulder, I outrank you, I'm going first. So he went first and we followed behind him and we're walking up the trail or on the side of the trail. He turns the corner and he got shot and he yelled out because he didn't, so he didn't get killed. He just got shot and he didn't get killed. He yelled out okay. and obviously he was, he was down, but because uh, he didn't get up and come back or anything. And you have to remember, think about this. In that moment, it was like July 4th on st experiential steroids, like the entire jungle erupted yeah. on fire and AK-47s and mortars and helicopter. All of this happened in that moment. And then 
in that moment, we all hit the ground and got behind cover. And at that moment, Bochamp jumped up and said, I'm going to go get him. And before Short could say don't, Bochamp was dead. And then that guy who's killed, who killed them was trying to kill me. I killed him. Short said, let's get out of here. And in that moment, I'm going to write about that between now and tomorrow night because I want to get that off my, off my, um, off my plate and into the world because it's a really powerful story. And that moment, we had to decide to leave them out there, which is a cardinal sin in military. You never leave anybody behind. Yeah. But there was no way we were going to get them and be alive. So both me and Short have been dealing with survivor's guilt our entire adult lives. Now, All right. So, so take me through through that. Like, how how has it affected you? Well, I have spent my life making making a difference. Partly because I like doing that, but ultimately, it's a compensation for being guilty about what happened. Yeah. And uh, and I'm working on having it be something other than a compensation for feeling guilty and using it as a story that can empower other people because you know there's things going on in the world now like in ukraine all those fat women and families that are leaving their homes and going somewhere they may never see their fathers or their sons or their brothers ever again and they're going to be left with you know besides being homeless and having to leave their country they're all going to be having survivor's guilt all the people that survived that are going to be left with survivor's guilt. It's a pretty powerful, undistinguished disorder that I don't think the psychological world has ever dealt with or looked at or begun, to, or certainly not the VA has never you know, thought about it or dealt with it. But it's a pretty, pretty pervasive uh, condition of life. And um, I just wake up every day with a commitment to making a difference in some days I hit the target, some days I shoot blanks, but you just keep going. And as you know, there's so many things going on in the world that need somebody to do something. So I ended up being one of those people that are making a difference. And um, I work on people's bodies and I work on uh, the way I tell 10 years after Vietnam, I went from being a warrior to a, to a healer. Love that. So you said the key, the key phrase is make a difference. So now I don't have, I don't have like a therapist background, like like a, a, like I don't have any type of certifications in mental health, but I help people tell their stories. And one thing I say is like you can take what happened to you, kind of how I said it in my teachable moment, and let it continue to hurt you, or you can take those lessons and use it to make a difference. And like that's the best way to reframe the survivor's guilt is to say you were selected for a purpose. Know what I mean? So it's like, those, yeah, those, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. I, I definitely know what you mean. Yeah. So and, like those people died around you, but you were selected to, to tell those stories about what happened and how you were able to move forward with your life. So now it doesn't have to be an act of war. Someone, someone could be coming off of, a 20 year marriage and they're getting divorced and they have to pick up the pieces of their life and move forward. Your story is actually relatable to that person. You know, so it's like once you realize that you can touch a lot of different people with those stories. And now it's like, you're stepping into your own power 
and by taking what happened to you and helping other people better themselves. So now it's like you were selected for this duty. Sorry, well, I just, just went on work mode on you right there. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting you say that because uh, I do something called rolfing, and some people may or may not have ever heard of it. They can go to my website, rolfingtoport.com, and find out about it. It's a very highly specialized form of mind-body transformation. Mm-hmm. And so it's a series of sessions. I work on people's bodies. They have a before one, and after 10 sessions, they have a new relationship to their bodies and their lives. It's pretty mm-hmm. profound. Nothing. And um, I have no degrees. I don't and, either. And I studied directly with Dr. Rolf, and she only trained people that had college degrees. There were very few people that she ever trained that didn't have one. I'm yeah. one of them. And I wanted to study directly with her and that the likelihood of that happening, given that I, I had no degrees, no real training and any of that stuff uh, was not like likely, but um, I ended up working with her directly. She lived in Blackwood, New Jersey, which is about 20 minutes from Philadelphia. And I ended up working directly with her for the last four years of her life. I traveled around the country with her. I took her to the movies. I bought her groceries. I found all of her secretaries. And the last year of her life, she wanted to do a project on rolfing babies and children, which I'm pioneering. And um, and she chose me to put together that project and do it in my house in Philadelphia. And then she decided to do a final advanced class. And she did that. She also did that in my house. And we audio taped a lot of it. And from my lips to God's ears, I'm going to find a way to package those audio tapes and make them available to the world. Because she said some of the most profound things that she ever said during that time. But God works in mysterious ways. I ended up carrying Olive's body out of the jungle. That was not the most likely thing to happen. I ended up surviving March 16th. I've survived a whole bunch of other things. I've had projects that worked and projects that failed. And um, I've worked on 5,000 people. Uh, I have tons of videos and stuff like that. And um, so it's just all, and then I I work with a lot of teenagers during the summertime and on the weekends, and they don't know how to communicate. Nope. (laughs) They are not given courses in public speaking. Yeah, you're so right. Most of them can barely tell you anything. And so they're really smart intellectually, but emotionally, they don't have the emotional development. So whatever degree that I can make a difference on the planet in the next generation of kids and the next generation of whatever generation, uh, it's really critical that people learn how to open up, become vulnerable, and share their stories. And everybody has Yeah, I say that almost every single episode. Like, everybody has a story. I I think... I don't know if you remember from the publicity summit where I, when I addressed everyone, I said, everyone has a story. I said, so unless you blew up an orphanage or something, I, I have space for you on my show. Because <laughs> you know? everybody had, had, had a story. And that's one of the biggest travesties is when people don't think that they do. Because, you know, stories don't have to be as profound as yours, you know, being a war hero and surviving, you know, while other people around you have have passed away you know during that that time it could be something um i spoke with a woman she she wanted to tell to tell her story about she grew up in an urban environment and then her dad got a got a better paying job and they and they ended up moving to to, to the suburbs and she fell in love with nature and so she she's creating a business to where she wants to go back to these urban schools 
and she wants to put in like outdoor learning areas, you know? And so I was like, why are you downplaying that? I'm like, that's huge. It's like, you, you took something that you experienced in your childhood, you experienced something different, you fell in love with it and you want to create something that is lacking in these urban areas. Like that is an amazing story. You know, so I just helped her piece it together so when she's pitching it for, for investors, that it really embodies how amazing the story truly is. You know, so once people realize, yeah, exactly, Monique, like us, like, you know, once people realize how powerful your stories are, that's like, like it says above us, your true power lies in your stories. Like, I, I firmly, firmly believe that. And like, that's my, my catchphrase. But also my sister had asked, what unit were you in? I was in the weapons squad. The 3rd Platoon, Company B, 2nd Battalion, 503rd Infantry, 173rd Airborne Brigade. That's a lot to remember. It's a lot to remember. <laughs> but, you know, it, I, I don't know why it was ingrained in me to be profoundly um, related to that unit, but we were called the Bravo Bulls, and we were... We were a pretty strange group of people. <laughs> we did some, we did some really great, we did some great things in Vietnam. Um, well, I'll just tell you, we have a couple more minutes to tell you one of the things that another person that got killed, um, uh, Sergeant, I think it was a spec for Harper, and we were we got we found out that Playboy was having a um, a deal where you could buy a lifetime subscription. To Playboy, and they would have a Playmate or Bunny deliver the first copy, and they forgot to put, but not in Vietnam. <laughs> so, one of the lieutenants in our company got together. Some of the people from his um, his squad or platoon uh, called up, and um, they raised a thousand dollars. And um, they we said we wanted Joe Collins to come and give us our first copy. And um, so one thing led to another, and she was coming over, but we were in the um, in the jungle, and they created a phony mission for us and uh, so that we could get back. And our mission was to take some Vietnamese villagers, some refugees from one village to another, and we were kind of like shepherding them along. And somebody uh, stepped on a harper, got blown up by a, or got hit by a, um, by a mine, landmine, mm. and he didn't die immediately. He actually got to say hello to her before he died. Oh wow! But you know what? All he ever wanted to do was to go home and be with his family. Yeah. That I remember profoundly. Yeah. So, you know, it was a it was a pretty strange unit, and we did some really great things. And I'm proud of the time that I served there. I'm not particularly happy of having been in war, but God had some purpose for me doing it, and maybe it's so that I could. Be able to share about it now so that maybe oh i remember on march 16th as i was as i was uh, right there with that bullet behind the tree i looked up and said i think we need to start studying peace and not war and i think we still need to study peace i think we need to have uh peace needs to be taught in every school because in philadelphia and around the country people are being killed every day by gunfire some crazy guy just shot people in Washington, D.C., and he just shot people in New York, and then somebody stabbed people in a, a museum. So obviously we're not teaching, we're not getting the job of teaching peace deep enough so that everybody can begin to learn how to live a peaceful life and maybe have a peaceful planet. 
so now I know you wrote you wrote your your ebook about Milton Olive. Yes. But just just from your first hand experience, what did you learn about him that you didn't think you would learn? Oh. <laughs> so he was born in Lexington, Mississippi, and um I when I got the ebook done, I decided I need to launch and so I called the mayor of Lexington and asked her if I could come talk to her town. And she said, oh, yeah, everybody in Lexington knows who Milton Olive is. We have a monument built in the, uh, uh, right in front of the courthouse that a wealthy lawyer put together $80,000 and built a monument. There's a monument to Olive and there's a monument to a Confederate general on the same courthouse. So he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's in, in Chicago. There's a park named after him. There's a, a college, a community college in, in Chicago that's named after him. It's not, uh, it's called Olive Harvey College because uh, Harvey was a white guy, Olive is a black guy. They didn't want to name it Harvey College, I mean Olive College, because it would be all about a black guy. So they had to put the white guy in there. Okay. And then there's a middle school in Long Island and the educational results in that middle school, Olive is turning over in his grave but they have his name on that school because mm -hmm. so there, and there's lots of people in places around the country where he's made a difference. And people go to that park every day in Chicago and it's a beautiful place. And um, I put together a reunion there about seven years ago and we got the entire city council to uh, endorse it. We got, uh, we got proclamations from about 10 or 15 different governors and um, even president, Obama sent me a letter, and uh, so I'm not done yet. <laughs> he's not done yet. You and I are not done yet, but we're out there making a difference, and that's what I learned. Yeah, this is great. I'm not, like I haven't I haven't read the ebook yet, but because like because I wanted to talk to you first because I I like to have the conversations as raw and organic as possible. But I'm very very intrigued about reading reading about your your perspective of his story and don't don't let the other people try to get you down you know what i mean like you you share you share what you know from your heart if, if other people want want to share something they can do it yep i agree uh no i'm not gonna i don't i'm kind of unstoppable at this point in my life <laughs> Good. dr Rolf died when she was 81 she said i'm too old to care what people think yeah, it's, it's 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 true, and and I don't even say that in like in like a cocky kind of way. It's like once you realize, like this is my life. Like I'm entitled to see life how I see it. <laughs> and so it's like I do another show where I do debates, and so we talking about we were talking about police brutality this one day, and so the guy that I had on, you know, he had gotten beaten up by the cops coincidentally in Philadelphia. And so he has, he has his perspective. And I was like, I got pulled over drunk. Like I would have blew up a breathalyzer if they gave me a, it would just exploded. And the police officer followed me home. <laughs> you know, so, so it's like, just because my experiences are different, I'm not denying that police brutality happens, but there is another side of the story where there are some amazing officers out there. That because he easily could have took me in, he easily could have impounded my car, and I could have got a like he could have wrecked my world that day. But I was like, I wasn't driving erratic or anything, but just still, I was like, I live a mile up the road, 
And so he's like, I tell you what, he's like, I'm going to follow you. If there's no problems, we're going to forget this ever happened. And he's like, but he's like, but if there's problems, there's going to be a problem. Right. I was like, oh, okay, there's no pressure, <laughs> you know, but like, I, and I've had many of experiences like, like that. I've done volunteer work with uh, the Warwick, the Warwick, Rhode Island Police Department, with the Cranston Police Department, with the Providence Police Department, and like, there's many, many great officers, so it's like, we can't just highlight the bad ones, because that makes the whole look bad, you know? I agree, it's, yep. Yeah, it's like, we don't want to do that. Now, I have a question for you real quick. Yes, sir. Is this, this going to be on YouTube? It's on YouTube right now. Will you send me a link? Absolutely. And I guess it'll be on Facebook? Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're live on both of those now. If you send me a, a link, I'll share it on my platforms and everybody I know. It's oh, a great awesome. conversation. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm going to connect you with, with a couple of my podcast friends, too, so you can continue to spread your spread your story. That's great. Yeah. So I think, you know, Personally, I think that um, we're not done yet with racism in this country, in case you haven't noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And so to whatever degree that I can move the meter a little bit further down the road is a good idea. And, yeah. um, good. you know, it, 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 50 years, he didn't die 50 something years ago. So that, you know, 50 years later, uh, we have statistics on uh Elementary school statistics on every uh, elementary school in Philadelphia: seventy-five percent of the kids in those schools cannot read above fifty above fifty percent proficiency in reading and math. Yep. Some as low as five or six percent, and that's insane because I have software that can make a difference. And um, and then we have statistics on every state capital in the country, and a million two hundred thousand kids in those elementary schools in the fifty state capitals. 800,000 of them are below 50% proficient in reading and math. The majority of them are minority kids. That's something that cannot continue to be tolerated. Yes, like when, when I speak when I speak in schools, especially in the more the more urban schools, is I hammer those those points home that you know you're because I'm more on the accountability side of things, where it's like no matter what curveball life throws you you can hit it. Curveballs can be hit for home runs. That's right. you, know, you know what I mean? So it's That's like, a good one. <laughs> right? like, it doesn't matter what life throws at you. Like if you go in for a job and someone doesn't like you, apply for another job. It's like not everybody of any race is going to like you. You know, there's other white people that's not going to like you. There's other black people that's not gonna like me, yep. <laughs> you know. So it's like we gotta stop letting, and I call it trivial because again, I can look at life through my own lens. I call it trivial. Like if I walk in somewhere and people don't like me just because they want to look at me and prejudge, that's their problem. That is not my problem, <laughs> you know. So like it's like if I go through life worrying about who doesn't like me, I'm not living my life. <laughs> like I, I, I do me. I speak my truth, you know, I get guests on to speak their truth, and that, that's the part that we're doing to change the world. So I, I go into schools, and I say, yeah, someone might not like you because you're a female. Be so great they can't ignore you. Someone might not like you because you're Jewish. Be so great that they can't ignore you. It's like, that's, that's the message that I leave in these schools. So, like, it doesn't matter. It's like, you can't change the fact that you were born black. You can't change the fact that you were born gay. You know, you can't change the fact that you were born a female. 
Well, I guess that's debatable nowadays, but but you get the point. But but it's like it doesn't matter what life throws at you. If you're born, uh, one of my son's former best friends was born with no arms, and he was the starting place kicker for a football team. You know what I'm saying? It's like he took the card that life gave him and he ran with it. <laughs> you know, so I was like, if we keep giving those messages in school and stop telling kids you're oppressed or you're less than or you're an oppressor or you have privilege, it's like, no, get out there. You have gifts. Take your gifts into the world and change it. <laughs> right. And we teach that message in school. Things like you that like you brought up will naturally take care of itself over time. But like, if we just keep telling kids, you you can't do this because of the color of your skin. You can't do this because you're a female. Like, they're gonna grow up believing it. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then the cycle's gonna continue. Yeah. So, so the idea is to create a, thanks, an, Monique, an empowering right. context. Yes, absolutely. Hi, absolutely. Monique. Say goodbye. <laughs> Send me an email, Monique. Yeah, she gave me she gave me hers here, so I'll I'll pass this on to you, and uh, that way you, you you two can get in contact and go see what that see what that takes you. Let me get a pin real quick. Okay. Saying that's the that's the the power of sharing the stories, because like I didn't know she was gonna tune tune in today, and like and I said, and she and she she works with the military in New York with veterans. So, so be a good good contact for you. See where it goes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can I can email it to you too if needed. That'll be great. Is she your sister? Yes, she's the oldest. She's the oldest of seven. I'm the youngest. I tell them I'm the youngest, oh. but I'm still in charge. <laughs> I have a project called Tech for Vets. Okay. Where we. We'll give a veteran a laptop for $100 and $35 to send it to them. Oh, no kidding. So this tech for vets. That's that's great to know. Awesome. I'll send that to her. Okay. Yeah, and I've had I've had quite a few veterans on the show as well that um, I can connect you with. Because, again, you never know where the connections will lead. So e- even if that particular person can't lead you anywhere, they might know someone else who can. So, because you know, you said you want it, you want this to be a national story. So, I'll do what I can to to connect you with the people that I know that that can help you get it there. That's awesome. You're great. You're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> thank Byron. you. My pleasure. All right. So, unfortunately, this has come to an end. So, again, thank you for taking the time, and thank you for being so candid with the backstory. Because, like I said, that just makes everything that that happened that much greater. You're just growing up in the segregated South. You know, you self-admitted you had a feeling of superiority over Blacks. You get paired up with this Black man. You guys become brothers. Unfortunately, you have to carry his his body out of a war zone. Like, the, the entire story is just so powerful. But just knowing the beginning point is huge. So, I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've told it that deep before, but... As you move forward, I, I would encourage you to share that part of it as well because it, it ties it in better. Just like you were saying, you know, we have a long way to go with, with racism, but seeing people have the shift because it goes the other way too. Like if you're in a black community and you don't have a lot of exposure to white people, yeah, absolutely. you only know what's displayed. <laughs> you know, so so and, and vice versa. If, if you're not exposed to the different races, not just white white and black, 
You know, like, I mean, I have a handful of Asian friends, but I really can't tell you. I'm not like a connoisseur of Asian culture. You know, like, does that make me racist? No, I just haven't been exposed. (laughs) So, you know, so again, thank you for for sharing that backstory. So it's great. And I do, I do panels once a month. So like, if you're interested, I usually have on myself and five, five other of my past guests. And we just do roundtable discussions. So if you're interested in that. Just let, me know, let me know when. I've got nothing better to do than make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a perfect way to end right there. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So friend, friend me on Facebook if we're not friend, friends already. And um, I'll connect you with my podcast friends. All right. Great. Thank you. Sir. All, right. All right. Thank you. Have a have great day. day. Thank you. Be, right. be good. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping others break through the barriers that are holding them back. To book Robert B. Foster to speak or to reach out, go to robertbfoster.com. Till next time, shut up and grind.